The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading this morning comes to us from James chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God, we thank you for your word. Our little raised bed garden behind our garage was planted about two months ago. It's completely fruitless. There's no pods of peas for me. There's no batches of beans. There's no cornucopia of cucumbers. And a few days ago, like Charlie Brown under that rain cloud, as I was surveying the fruitlessness of my garden... I quickly and angrily shouted, rats, nothing my hand touches amounts to anything. Never been there? You ever been angry because the work that you thought would be fruitful has left you empty-handed? Have you ever been angry to the point that you shake a fist at someone or at the heavens and you spout out, I thought this was your idea, why'd you make this so hard? The problem with those hasty words that roll off of my tongue and the hot anger which comes spewing out of my heart is this, self-delusion. I've convinced myself of something that isn't true. That just because I put a seed in the ground with little to no experience in gardening, that should make me a gardener. Because I declare in April, I'm going to plant a garden. I should be a fruitful farmer in July. I think of 1 Corinthians 3, 7 that says, Neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. For the recipients of James's letter, these new Christian converts, they're in a similar predicament. Planted in them is the seed of salvation. Planted in him is faith in Jesus Christ. 
the God-man who came to save them from their sin and resurrect them to eternal life. Shouldn't they be bearing fruit after about a decade of following him? But what comes to them, as James talked about earlier in the letter, is trial, tribulation, even temptation. Some of them are homeless. Some of them are penniless. And to make matters worse, they're being treated both by the pagans and by the religious as if they are less than human. So what does any human being do naturally in this kind of situation? Usually we do one of two things. We defend ourselves or we promote ourselves. We maybe defend ourselves by responding to the verbal attacks of the haters of us with counterattacks. No but, no but, no but. Or we can tend to promote ourselves by looking more like the respectable religious so that we'll be treated better than we are. The more we do this, whether defend ourselves or promote ourselves, the more fruit that's going to come from our faith in Jesus, right? Wrong. <laughs> we see this trend in our culture with the term now, evangelicals. It's become less a term about those who proclaim the good news of Jesus. And it's more a political term of defending and promoting. Evangelicals are now affiliated with a certain political party who defend their rights as a citizen of the U.S. of A. Evangelicals also have promoted themselves so that they can be in the photo op standing next to powerful political people. This is fruitful to the gospel, right? Wrong. We delude ourselves into thinking self-defense and self-promotion is the way of the gospel. So what, what is the solution to this self-delusion that we're under? James tells us, he says, take a look at the seed that's growing within and you're going to find the answer. Here's my proposition for this morning, friends. The seed of salvation that's within you is Jesus. So the fruit of our lives must look like him. The seed of salvation within us is Jesus. So the fruit of our lives needs to look like him. What does James say the fruit of this seed of salvation Jesus looks like? Well, he begins in verses 19 to 21 with this. The fruit looks like a God who listens quicker than he speaks. 19, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James is writing to a mostly Jewish audience who know the scriptures. And he begins with this phrase, know this which might also be translated as, you know this, you already know this, as they're facing the trials and temptations of being strangers in a strange land, 
he points them to the character of God that they already know. He takes them to Exodus 34, which says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This description from Exodus 34 came from God right after his own people rejected him and started worshiping a golden cow. God's response to a rebellious people doesn't start with anger or wrath. It starts with listening. What is listening? All the couples in this room, all the children and their parents, what is listening? What are you doing when you're listening? You're attempting to understand what is going on with someone. It would be justified if a holy God responded to sin instantly with anger. But that doesn't produce, verse 20 says, the righteousness or fruit of God. What does? A quickness to listen, to understand, combined with a slowness to react with words or with anger and wrath. God slows his response time down to hear what's going on, to have compassion for the plight of a helpless people who can't help themselves. Just look at the Garden of Eden. What happens? What's the Lord's first response to learning that Adam and Eve have disobeyed him? What is his first response? Does the earth shake and asteroids fall from the sky? Does God say, no, you've done it? No. It begins with a question. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? What if instead of going at someone who sinned against you with your words or with your judgment of guilt, you asked, where are you? Where are you? If God treats us with such an understanding and compassion, then how are we to respond to him and to others? Verse 21 tells us, by putting away, taking off the dirty clothes of quick and angry responses and humbly accepting his gift of forgiveness, the implanted word, the good news of Jesus. We didn't earn Christ so we could defend him with picket signs and religious rightness. No, we're to receive him with meekness and there's to be a gentleness about us. In the world... Christians should not be people who spout out at the mouth with venomous anger. That's not how God responded to us. We should be a people filled with a variety of questions that sound like, where are you? Where are you? As a parent, when I instantly respond to my kids with anger, and they can feel my wrath, it leaves everyone miserable, including myself. But when I take the time to go up to their room, which I may have sent them, and listen to them, tell me what happened. Tell me what went on. 
when I acknowledge how hard it can be to have a brother that keeps crediting you in the stomach. That's their expression. They credit each other. They push their hand into their stomach. It's hard to have a brother that keeps crediting you. It won't be long before as I listen and seek to understand what's going on that I can ask, is there anything that you did wrong? And they will own it. And they will take steps to repent of it. Listen, listening doesn't mean just passive hearing, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. It means an active understanding so that what's generated in you as you're listening is compassion. I've shared this with some of you, but the studies show this. Our brains show this. Brain activity is far different when someone is asked a question than when they're given a statement. With a statement, here's what happens to the brain in its processing. A little single part of the brain lights up like the attic in a house when you're just set, you're told something. But when you're asked a question, what happens to your brain? The entire brain lights up in the thinking that goes on in the house. And I want you to imagine for a moment, really just take a moment, a few seconds to imagine what would look different about your life and about the world if you spent 70% of your time listening, 20% giving your opinion, and 10% giving a judgment? 70% of your time listening, think about this, 20% giving your opinion and 10% giving a judgment. What would your life and how would your life look differently? When we do that, when we spend the majority of our time understanding and the minority of our time giving our opinion and an even smaller minority of our time giving a judgment, friends, you are ushering in your master, your king, your God when you do. Fruitfulness looks like a God who listens quicker than he speaks. And it also looks like a God who responds creatively to our needs. Verses 22 to 25, we see this. And before I read it, there's a word in here, there's a verb or a noun in here, the Greek word poieo. It's the verb for doing or a doer. And it can also be translated as a maker, someone who works to create something. And I think in our world of busyness and in our culture, being a doer has a very negative connotation, doesn't it? Like someone who's just running around frantically. So I want you to hear these verses again with a word substitution. Starting in verse 22. But be makers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a maker, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a maker who acts, 
He will be blessed in his making. This is the nature of our God. He is quick to listen, slow to speak, but when he does speak, friends, something always happens. At the beginning, when God said, let there be light, when he spoke that, what happened? Light appeared. He made something happen. The gospel of Jesus is a creative response to need. God, the one who made the universe, creatively made something happen. He was a maker of the word. Think about the beginning of John. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was speaking all of creation into being. He was a maker. This Word, Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, was around from all eternity and responsible for making this world. But imagine if the Father and the Son fully understood the human condition that Adam and Eve and the rest of us were in, dead in the water, no longer able to save themselves, if that God understood fully what was going on and he did absolutely nothing, if he made absolutely nothing happen, what kind of God would that be? It's cruel. That's not our God. He makes something happen. He was a maker of all creation, and he's a remaker of salvation. God creatively became a maker of the word. Genesis 3.15, the maker says to the serpent who invaded his paradise with temptation and wrecked the relationship that God had with his people, he says to the enemy this, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. The maker responds to evil by revealing this creatively made plan. God refers in Genesis 3.15 to this mysterious he. Who is that he? We don't know in Genesis, but we know in John, he is the word who was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus would make a way. The making James is referring to here is contrasted as he talks about two men who are staring. First one in verse 24 is very much, very culturally relevant. Where does this first man look at himself? The verb is, is like a selfie pose in the mirror. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but when I go to the Y, it is the weirdest experience to have these guys standing in front of mirrors with the phone and taking a picture of their body. I'm like, what are you doing? That is so bizarre. That is so weird. But that's what's described here. After a workout, he's just admiring what he's got there. It is the weirdest thing. He sees the world in relationship to himself. And what happens when he walks away after a glance at himself? He forgets who he is, so he hops on Facebook just to look at it one more time. If God were a narcissist like this, he would have never sent Jesus. But the second person does something very different. The verb is different. The second person stoops down to investigate and understand the perfect law and the freedom. This is God's posture. He stoops down and he investigates and looks at what's going on. 
And what does he see as he stares at that? Something that needs to be remedied. Something that needs to be fixed. And so he sends his son. God stoops down by the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So for us, as we stoop down and we turn the mirror off, turn the phone off and look at something else besides ourselves, we look down and we see the world in its condition. And we see Christ coming to save us in that condition. We see Christ's sacrifice that will set people free. The law of freedom right there. So how do we respond then? With perseverance, it says, and action. I'll be a maker of what you just did. I see sacrifice. I will be sacrifice. Christ made a way, I want to be a maker of that way. I see a cross, I take up a cross. I'm happy to do it, verse 25 says. Because I took time to understand what it was, the work of Christ and what he's done for me. Rather than check my hair or check my makeup and be on my merry way, you friends are a maker of the word. You are a baker of the bread of life. You are a gardener of the gospel. You are a songwriter of the Savior. You're not just a listener of a sermon or a song. You're not just an eater of the communion bread and wine in the garden. We have to move from being consumers and instead be creators creatively responding to needs around us by offering ourselves with service and sacrifice. To be a doer, friends, to be a doer is to be a dyer. Dying to yourself and your own image in the mirror. Consider these challenging words from B.B. Warfield. There is no length to which Christ's self-sacrifice did not lead him. He who was in the form of God took such consideration for us that he made no account of himself. Into the immeasurable calm of the divine blessedness, he says, he permitted this thought to enter. I will die for men. And so mighty was his love, so big was his purpose to save, that he thought nothing of his divine majesty, nothing of his equality with God and staring in a mirror, but absorbed in us, in our needs, in our misery, in our helplessness. He made no account of himself. If this is to be our example, what limit can we set to our self-sacrifice? Let us remember that we are no longer our own, but we are Christ's. We have been bought with the price of his blood and are to live not for ourselves, but for him. Unquote. Doers are dyers. Makers are martyrs. So how do we practice this as we close, you might ask? What does doing by dying look like? Thankfully, James finishes this portion of the letter with a mental snapshot. Fruitfulness looks like this. A God who acts purely and mercifully to the least of these. A God who acts purely and mercifully to the least of these. The last couple of verses, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue 
but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is going after our temptation to become religious. First, what is religion? What does it mean to be religious? It's got such a negative connotation, but it doesn't have to. Religion is just the outpouring of your heart. Religion is what comes out of what's inside your faith. James says that if what is coming out is venom from your tongue about people who have wronged you or angry judgments about people who are not like you and you call yourself religious, then you can just go ahead and put that form of religion in the compost pile to be eaten by maggots because that's not religion. But true religion, true fruit of the gospel in us is two sides of the same coin. First side, showing mercy to those in desperate need. And the second side, using hands which are clean by Christ, hands not contaminated by the world. There's a story about a pastor. Hesitate to tell this one because it's a little bit, it could be interpreted legalistically and I don't want it to be. There's a story about a pastor who was approached by a friend who was a physician, part of, a church, part of his church. And this friend, this physician, was concerned about the pastor's health. He'd been working really hard, and it clearly on his face the pastor needed rest. And so he handed the pastor some tickets to a new play. He said to him, you know, you need this. You need some time off. You need some time away. And his pastor, seeing that the tickets were to a play of a kind that he could not go to in good conscience. And so he said kindly, thank you. I, I can't take them. I can't go. And the physician was like, well, why not? You're, I mean, you're tired. You need the entertainment. <laughs> and the pastor replied, yeah, I am. I am tired. Yep. And I do need rest. Yeah. But doctor, it's this way. You're a physician, a surgeon, in fact, right? When you operate, you scrub your hands meticulously until you're antiseptically clean. You wouldn't dare operate on someone with dirty hands. I'm a servant of Christ, the pastor said. I deal with precious human souls. And I wouldn't dare do my work with a dirty life or dirty hands. Friends, religion is dirty work. Because we're stepping into places of suffering and sin. But we must do our making, our work, with clean hands and pure hearts. We canceled a church group outing to a movie this week. Because some of the content of the film was explicit. And we did that not because we want to look holier than everyone else. No. But because we want the work that we do the making that we do in serving the least of these to be looking like Christ with clean hands and the pure hearts that Christ has given us. Not stained or affected or marked or marred by the world's ways. Who are the least of these in your life that God is asking you to mercifully get dirty in serving them? It doesn't just have to be the physically poor. 
It's people who are vulnerable. It's people who have difficulty speaking for themselves. People who have little rights in their community. You don't have to look far to find those people. And where do you need to avoid? What places do you need to avoid in order to keep your hands, your mind, your heart clean? If you are quick to hear these words, then your choices of what you entertain yourselves with, the people that you subject yourselves to will change the more you listen. The seed that's implanted in us is Jesus. And his religion, his expression of faith in his Father looks so different from every other religion found in our world. I'll close with this illustration. Imagine with me a child who's fallen into a deep pit filled with sewage and slithering around the pit is a venomous snake that this child is desperately trying to avoid in the pit. And from the top of the pit, along comes, say, an animist. This is like tribal religions who looks down into the pit and sees the snake. And his eyes open wide. And he just runs into the jungle before that same evil spirit can throw him into the pit. He's gone. Then comes along the moralist who says this. You know what? You should have been more careful. If you'd have been looking where you were going, you wouldn't have fallen into that pit. Then the Hindu comes along and says, Ah, you think you are in a great black pit, but that is the error of the mortal mind. The fact is that all is Brahman, and Brahman is all. In this external world, it's just illusion. The pit doesn't exist. Think, there is no pit. There is no pit. There is no serpent. And all will be well, peace. And a Muslim sees the man in the pit and says, It's easy to get out of that pit, my friend. Just practice the five truths of Islam. Give alms to the poor. Make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Pray five times a day toward Mecca. Fast during the month of Ramadan. And confess there is one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Then comes the Buddhist who looks down and says, Dear friend, you are suffering greatly in that pit. And the reason you are suffering is that you want to get out of the pit. It is your desire that is making you miserable. When you must come, what you must come to is a cessation of all desire. And then you won't mind being in the pit. I think if you were the child looking up at all of these solutions, this is not helpful! <laughs> Then Jesus comes, and he looks long. He's quick to listen to what's going on. He looks with compassionate eyes at the child in the pit, quick to understand his plight and his desperate position. And what does he do? Into the foul and filthy pit, a perfect Jesus leaps between the child and and the serpent. And the serpent strikes at Jesus, sinking his fangs into his side. And as the venom flows into Jesus, Christ 
lifts the child out of the pit. Friends, this is true religion. This is the seed Jesus implanted in us. A God who listens before he speaks to understand the need. A God who creatively meets that need by jumping in and making a way out. And a God who acts purely and mercifully to the least of these. Orphaned you and widowed me. Let the seed he's planted in us bear much fruit. Fruit that looks more and more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for your work to be done, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and in us as it's being done in heaven. Father, we pray that our people would get quieter. We'd be so much better at listening than talking. So that when we listen and when we truly understand the plight and the condition of people, that after listening 70% of the time, we then bring 20% of our response. We speak truth in love. We offer Christ the hope that we have. And that we speak to judgment of what happens when Christ is refused. When that person stays in the pit. A snake will bite and God's wrath will come. But I pray, Father, that you would help us to be a people whose fruit looks more and more like Jesus. Do your will and do your work in us, we pray in Christ's perfect name.